Please open your copies of God's Word to the New Testament and to Paul's epistle to the Romans and chapter 10. Romans chapter 10. And we read together the whole of this chapter. Romans chapter 10. Commencing our reading at verse 1. Romans chapter 10 and verse 1. And may it please the Lord to grant us fear as we read his precious word. Romans 10 and verse 1. Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. For I bear them record that they have a zeal of God, but not according to knowledge. For they, being ignorant of God's righteousness, and going about to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted themselves unto the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end, that is the fulfillment of the law, for righteousness to every one that believeth. For Moses describeth the righteousness which is of the law, that the man which doeth these things shall live by them. But the righteousness which is of faith speaketh on this wise, Say not in thine heart, Who shall ascend into heaven? That is, to bring Christ down from above. Or, Who shall descend into the deep? That is, to bring up Christ again from the dead. But what saith it? The word is nigh thee, even in thy mouth and in thy heart. That is the word of faith which we preach that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. For with the heart man believeth unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. For the Scripture saith, Whosoever believeth on him shall not be ashamed. For there is no difference between the Jew and the Greek. For the same Lord over all is rich unto all that call upon him. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. How then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach except they be sent? As it is written, How beautiful are the feet of them that preach the gospel of peace and bring glad tidings of good things. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Esaias, that is Isaiah, saith, Lord, who hath believed our report. So then faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. But I say, have they not heard? Yes, verily, their sound went out into all the earth, and their words unto the ends of the world. But I say, did not Israel know? First Moses saith, I will provoke you to jealousy by them that are no people, and by a foolish nation I will anger you. But Esaias is very bold, 
and saith, I was found of them that sought me not. I was made manifest unto them that asked not after me. But to Israel, he saith, all day long I have stretched forth my hands unto a disobedient and gainsaying people. Amen. And may it please the Lord to bless his word to our every heart this evening. With the Lord's help, we hope to examine verses 8 to 13. 8 to 13 of Romans. Before we read those once more, let us pray unto the Lord, please. Let us pray. O oh God, we give thee humble thanks that once again we've had thy word in our hearing. We thank thee that thou hast spoken to us. Thy, thy word is truth. That our Savior is the truth. And God be true in every man a liar. We thank thee, Lord, for the scriptures of truth. And the spirit of truth is their author. And Lord, it's all true what is here. And help us to understand it and believe it and, and to know it. Even this evening, that those of us who do not know our sins forgiven, may we know the work of the Holy Ghost to open our hearts and to give us new life. Would thou be merciful even this evening? Pour out thy spirit upon this gathering and upon thy servant that thy word may go forth with power in spite of human weakness. Lord, thou art all our sufficiency in all these matters and to God be all the glory for we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. let us read those uh, verses again chapter 10 and verses 8 to 13 but what saith it the word is nigh thee even in thy mouth and in thy heart that is the word of faith which we preach that, that thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. For with the heart man believeth unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. For the scripture saith, Whosoever believeth on him shall not be ashamed. For there is no difference between the Jew and the Greek. For the same Lord over all is rich unto all that call upon him. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Amen. Now in this morning's preaching, I happen to mention the Westminster Confession of Faith. And, and if you don't know what it is, uh, I have a copy here. It includes a few other documents as well. Well, the Westminster Confession of Faith is, is what we might call a formalized theological statement of what the Puritans believed, of what the, the British uh, Presbyterians, um, Reformed Anglicans, uh, and Reformed Congregationalists uh, found to be uh, the core beliefs of Christianity. They had their differences, and they were not put in here. 
And that has been a mainstay of, of, of the Reformed faith in the English-speaking countries for these many centuries. It has been tried and tested. It has been put under the eye of scrutiny, and it has stood the test of time. Now, such confessions are very useful. They're useful declarations of faith, and, and the, um, the, the, the early Dutch church um, it was under attack, in this, we're talking about in the, uh, in the mid, early mid-1500s. And the only way that they could see fit to get out of this oppression by the king was to have a confession of faith written up. And, and it was thrown over the wall of the palace. And it was, it was found, it was collected. I'm not going to give all the names uh, of those who were involved in it. But it was found and it was taken to the king. And, and this, the, the point of the matter was, was to prove to the king that we Protestants are not heretics. That we believe many things the same. Yes, we have many differences with the Church of Rome. But the core truth, there is one God and there are three persons. That the, the, the Christ, that Jesus was divine and human. That he was born of a virgin. Uh, that he died a true death. That he rose again on the third day. That he ascended up into heaven etc., that they could read this statement and realize these are not wacko heretics that need to be, um, you know, removed from the land, but they are Christians of a slightly different hue and flavor than they were used to, but Christians nonetheless. And so historically, it's been very useful to have these confessional standards. I was referring to the Belgian Confession just now. So they're useful declarations of faith, they're useful standards by which you can measure something we call orthodoxy. And orthodoxy means that it is the true teaching, that it is straight down. If you want to if you, if you check if something straight, if a piece of wood is straight, you might, you might lay it on a flat surface just to see if there's a bend in there, uh, or, or you use a ruler to see if a line is straight. And, and that's really what a confession does. A confession uh, declares the truths, and, and if we're going to be biblical, then we should be able to say that, that yeah, what, what's in here, I believe what's in here. And besides being a standard, they're also very useful teaching tools, of course. And upon ordination, um, reformed men of the Presbyterian uh, school, shall we say, uh, would have to subscribe fully to such a confession, such a version of uh, the Westminster Confession. And when they subscribe to it, they're not saying, oh, I agree with most of it, what's in there. If it's a, if it's a, uh, if it's a conservative Presbyterian uh, denomination, it wouldn't be, uh, you know, I acknowledge it as historical background to where we are today. No, it would have to be something as literal as, I subscribe to this confession as being a confession of my own faith. I believe every article, every, everything that's in there. Similarly, there are Reformed churches that will only accept people into communicant membership once they've made public confession. And that's not the same as giving a public testimony that some churches might do. Rather, it is studying the confessional standards and then making a formal declaration, mostly just the word yes, uh, to some questions given in a, in a church service. And they would also say then that that which is in those confessional standards, I believe them all to be biblical, and I believe them to be true, and in reality, I believe them. That third step is often missing, but that's the point of a public confession of faith. 
However, when we consider confessing faith on a much less formal level, we can think of something very simple as a personal confession of faith. Well, you would confess that you know the Lord, that you trust the Lord, that you are of the Lord. And when we, when we understand that rightly, that a, a personal confession of faith is not merely lip service. And certainly what Paul is speaking of in this, in this uh, passage that we're looking at, a personal confession of faith is intertwined with true faith in the heart, the personal experience of faith. And that's why in these verses that we have before us, verses 8 to 13, we find a repeated contrast, a a, a laying side together these two things and the link that's with them. Uh, We see the relationship between the heart and the mouth, between faith and confession. Again, they're linked as well. And this is what Paul takes time to open up and to explain uh, to us. You can't have one without the other you cannot have one without the other and as he describes it and as he's been building up uh, since chapter 9 actually when he's considering the Jews but even in chapter 10 here he's speaking of something that he calls the word of faith the word of faith which is with the Lord's help this evening the title of our gospel sermon the word of faith And we see firstly then as we open verse 8 where we begin this evening, we see the word preached. The word preached. Romans 10 and verse 8. But what saith it? The word is nigh thee, even in thy mouth and in thy heart. That is the word of faith which we preach. See we're beginning in the very first uh, verse that we're examining with the contrast of mouth and heart. It's, It's to be in the mouth. It's to be in the heart. But let us first notice as we, as we read verse 8 that in the, in the previous two verses we have a reference, an allusion to one of Moses' sermons. And, and a portion of that sermon we read as the call to worship this evening, taken from Deuteronomy 30. And so he's taking, in verses 6 and 7, he's taking something of what, of what Moses is preaching and he's applying it to the gospel, he's applying it to Christ, and we're not going to go into those, those details of verses 6 and 7. But that's what he's examining. And the pains that Moses was attempting to make, and maybe just very briefly just go back to what he said in Deuteronomy 30. What, what is Moses preaching when he says here, For this commandment which I command thee this day, that's chapter 30 of Deuteronomy, verse 11. For this commandment which I command thee this day, it is not hidden from thee, neither is it far off. It is not in heaven that thou shouldest say, who shall go up for us to heaven and bring it unto us, that we may hear it and do it. Neither is it beyond the sea, or beyond the deep, is the language that Paul used, that thou shouldest say, Who shall go over the sea for us and bring it unto us that we might hear it and do it? But the word is very nigh unto thee in thy mouth and in thy heart that thou mayest do it. So we see, we recognize the echoes of what Paul is writing from Deuteronomy 30. But what the pains that Moses is taking to to emphasize a very simple truth 
and a glorious truth, a wonderful truth, to the needy sinner that desires forgiveness of sin. But it's a terrifying truth to the unrepentant sinner. And the truth is this, is the word of God is not obscure and is not difficult when it comes to the simplicity of the gospel. It is not difficult. It is is not far off. It is not hidden. It's not beyond our reach. It is nigh. It is close. And in speaking unto the Jews, they were the repository of the oracles of God. We have the word We can hear it, we can read it, those of us that can read. The Word of God is not hidden away. Yes, there are some obscure passages in in prophecy, in revelation, some things that are difficult to understand. But when it comes to making it very clear that we are guilty sinners before God, and God has the solution, and God lays out the solution... You can't deny the simplicity of the gospel, especially as we come to the New Testament where the light of Christ shines so brightly that even the shadows and the foreshadows, they are, as it were, brightened so clearly that we can see Christ. Christ is here in our flesh and walked among us, spoke our language, and his words were translated for us eventually. And he says, as much as you can recite the word, you can hear it so close it's in your mouth. But it's close to you when you recite the word, when you read the word. As people used to read, the normal way of reading was to read and say the words as you read it. It's only in very recent times that people have learned to read quietly. But children still do that. Children still will read the word, and as they're reading it, they will say the words as they're moving along. The ancients did it. So the word is in the mouth, you can recite it, you can understand it, you can keep it in your heart. And that is the heart of apostolic gospel preaching. Simplicity. It's not far off, it's not difficult. It's too simple. It's too simple. And Paul terms the apostolic gospel preaching here, he calls it the word of faith which we preach. The preaching of the gospel by the apostles, the word of faith. And you are to believe on the Savior that is revealed in the scriptures that we have here in the scriptures. Promised in the Old Testament, revealed in the New Testament. And the same Savior that taught the way of salvation to the apostles who are giving us this word of faith. And this is the same Savior whom the apostles bear witness to in their own writings. And it is the same message, and it is the same Savior who is being preached to you this evening. Now this phrase, the word of faith, that word, you might know a Greek word for word, and it's logos. And you may have heard of that one, but that's not the word that's used here. There's a second and, and equally commonly used word called rema or rima, rema, depending on your pronunciation. And how is that different from logos? Well, it is different. You could use it as a word, but it's more an idea. 
of a saying or a statement and 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 and, and a good tran- a good translation is also a sermon so the sermon of faith which we preach a sermon that commands faith exhorts you to believe teaches the only way of salvation is by faith talks of faith exhorts faith describes faith but the word of faith also points to an an often forgotten truth that faith is not only commanded under the preaching of the gospel but it is to be obtained it is to be gotten hold of under the preaching of the gospel so the preaching talks of faith but it is under the gospel preaching that faith is to be obtained in other words that the means of grace have great power within themselves and that's God's chosen way of bringing sinners under the sound of sound preaching of biblical gospel and then under that going forth of the word and the command to believe is the giving of gracious gifts to those who hear diligently And Paul goes on to reveal that very truth in verse 17. He says, So then faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. And that's why it's so essential when you come under the preaching of the word to listen intently and diligently with an open mind and an open heart that the word of Christ would enter in, that Christ can do what he wants with his word in your life that his word would have free course in your soul and whether that's bringing you to salvation tonight for the very first time whether that's feeding your soul whether that's receiving instruction rebuke correction whatever the Lord would do with his word you to allow him to do it but especially in the gospel application the Lord commands faith and he says under the preaching he will give faith but you must hear and you must hear properly you must hear expectantly you must hear with ears of faith you say I do not have faith but there is a human faith not a saving faith but there is a human faith that will cause you to listen and to trust the word to trust the word as it's in the scriptures and as it's preached and to be good Bereans of course and go and check whether it is so in the scriptures but to hear and to receive the word preached moves on in verse uh, 9 to the word confessed the word confessed verse 9 says that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead thou shalt be saved if this word of truth then has been received into your heart it has caused saving faith within you well then the next expectation is to hear the fruits of that saving faith when I was preparing this message I couldn't help but notice that there seems to be quite a bit of overlap with the sermon Uh, that I prepared for this morning that was entirely unintentional but let us hear this that there is to be the fruits of that saving faith 
And here in verse 9, the fruit of the mouth, confess with the, ma- confess with the mouth, that thy mouth that the Lord Jesus, the Lord Jesus, and shall believe in thine heart. We see, it begins with the fruit of the mouth before he mentions the fruit of the heart. And that's different from what he mentions in the following verse. Well, the question might be, you might think, I don't care. I'm not interested in why there might be a difference. But you should, because there is nothing that's been put in the Scriptures which is not for our benefit and not for our use. Even small details can be there to help us. I think the answer to this is a very simple reason, that the fruit of the mouth has been mentioned before the fruit of the heart, because it is impossible to be a Christian and to have the Word of God hidden in your heart and yet for it to never come out of your mouth. That there is a faith. We could extend that, that the fruits of the lips reveal that which is in the heart, and that's a, uh, that, that's a whole different sermon. And that's true as well, it's the same principle. But if there is saving faith, if there's true faith within your heart, then it would certainly be apparent upon your lips. But what we see in this particular verse then, in verse 9, is two gospel conditions. Two gospel conditions. And we see that with the word if. And the if, the word if is not repeated but it's implied. That if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, that's the first condition. And shalt, so if, shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead. Two conditions and in one glorious promise. Thou shalt be saved. Consider briefly together the mouth. That if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus. What does that mean, if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus? Does that mean that you merely mention the name of the Lord Jesus and it will get you into heaven? No. I've heard evangelicals say something to that degree. Oh, just, just confess the name of Jesus and you're saved. No, Christ's title, we see that with Christ, Christ's name, Jesus, are not a magic formula to be said and that will magic you into heaven. Because if that was the case, you'd enter heaven with your sin still upon you and God's wrath over you. That's not the gospel. Rather, this confessing the Lord Jesus is to confess with the mouth two things, that Jesus is the Savior and that Jesus is the Lord. That Jesus is the Savior and that Jesus is the Lord. And it could come down to verse 13. And notice what it says, we're reminded of it. It says, for whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. We could translate that, for whosoever shall call upon the name of Jesus. Because the the understanding of the word Lord, there is Jehovah, and and saved is the Hebrew word Shua, and together we get the name Jesus. Joshua, Jehoshua, Jehovah Shua, the Lord shall save so it's in his name. The gospel's in his name. But to confess with the mouth that Jesus is the Savior, the Redeemer sent from heaven, 
and that he is the Lord, that he is Jehovah. But more personally said, and this is what we understand in in what Paul is writing here, that Jesus is your Savior and that Jesus is your Lord. It is a, a personal confession of Christ. And it is indeed a confession that you make with your mouth and not merely with your thoughts. And for example, a colleague at work will ask you whether you're a Christian or not. They may see something about you and they'll ask you and you would have to answer yes. That's part of that confession. You're confessing, you're standing up to be honest. And in these days, in these times, it is not easy always to confess that Jesus is your saviour and your Lord. But maybe as that conversation would continue, if you had a reasonable colleague, you could reveal what it means to have Christ as your saviour, that you need him as your saviour, that every sinner needs him as their saviour and needs to be saved. And then you can go on to explain what it means that to have Christ as your Lord because he rules your life. He has become your king. He is your all in all. That gets closer to the understanding of if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus. But that condition, the first condition of speaking the name of Christ is insufficient to save. It will in and of itself not save you because anyone can misuse the name of Jesus and can dupe everybody. We know there are false religions that will misappropriate, they will take as their own Jesus but they have nothing to do with Christ. And more especially, Christ has nothing to do with them. So just speaking the name, just the confession is insufficient. That's why we have the second condition of the heart. That if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. So here we come now to faith in the heart. That rests what? Where does this faith come from? What is this faith based upon? It's based upon the scriptures. It's based upon what we read in the scriptures. And in the scriptures, what do we read? We read of the actual saving work of Christ. So the scriptures that describe it and the actual work that was done. And what do we understand a little bit of what's of the saving work of Jesus Christ? Well, it mentions here. The essential fact of the faith pointing to Christ's resurrection from the dead. The whole of the gospel, the whole of the life of Christ from incarnation to exaltation is all wrapped up in this particular point. That Christ rose from the dead. So we could say, as Calvin would say, he's he's using shorthand to describe everything. But in honing in on the resurrection, he is honing in. The, the most important point, really. I'm not saying anything against the cross. That's not what I mean. But if you have a resurrection, you have a resurrection because you're dead. So Christ died. But Christ rose again from the grave because he had no sin. He rose from the grave, he had no sin. But we know in the scriptures that he was laden with our sin on the cross. So what happened to that sin? 
burnt away under the wrath of God upon Christ's body and soul. The fact that Christ rose from the dead proves that every single sin for which he died, every sin of his people was dealt with on the cross. Else he would not have rose from the dead. He would have still had some of our sins on him, as it were. And because he had identified himself so closely with his own people, our sin, as it were, became his sin. He became sin for us that knew no sin. So Christ's resurrection from the dead is is an important, we could say, redemptive fact and proves that he is the victorious saviour savior over sin and over death and over Satan. And therefore, believing on this resurrected Lord, this Lord that paid for all the sin of all his people, that believing on him means for you also new life from death. New life from death. Firstly, for your soul. As you come to faith and as Christ enters into your heart, what we call regeneration, being born again. But the second time for the body in the resurrection, that there is new life promised to you by him who has conquered death and hell. And that's why we're to believe on his person. That's why we're to believe on Jesus. That's why we are to believe upon his work. We are to trust in his gospel. We are to trust in his redemption. Lord, if I trust in thee, and he says, as it were, my work of redemption is yours. Is faith a work? No. That's saying that God is true. And every man's a liar. But God is true. And therefore we have this very, very strong promise. That if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, the fruit of what happens in the heart, and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. And so you will believe and you repent Because Christ and his apostles and his servants are preaching this Christ and his work of redemption. And thou shalt be saved. In these promises that we see in these verses that we have before us, there is nowhere a maybe or a could or a could be. These are hard and fast and bold promises given But to emphasize the certainty of such gospel promise, such strong gospel promise, the apostle continues in chapter, in verse 10. So we've seen the word preached, the word confessed. We move on to uh, verse 10, the word believed. The word believed. For with the heart man believeth unto righteousness, righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. So now we have the order reversed. We have the, first of all, we have the faith in the heart, and then we have uh, the mouth confessing. And that is the, that's the true order, of course. That's the true order of how it works. You know, you'd pour, you'd pour uh, gasoline into the tank 
and then the engine can start. The, the, the engine is running is an indication, well, not only a thousand and one other things that the spark plugs are in and whatever, but, you know, the engine is running because it has fuel to run. There's no doubt, is there? There's no doubt that when that engine is turning over, there's certainly gasoline in the tank. And that's what we have here. There's definitely gasoline. There's definitely faith put into the tank of your soul uh, because there is, a, there is a, a confession made with the mouth. There is a life that produces a whole confession. Mouth is not merely the words, shall we say, but that's the beginning. It's also the whole of the life. So let's continue uh, and first examine the heart. As is mentioned here, faith, for with the heart man believeth unto righteousness. You know, this passage, just that verse, can really help us to understand something of what justification by faith is. What is justification by faith? Well, if you're a sinner, you're unjust, you're unrighteous. Even if you've sinned only once, you have become unrighteous. Because being righteous, true righteousness, earned righteousness, is never ever having sinned in thought and word and deed. Having thought, desired, spoken and done that which is right at all times. And there is only one that has ever done that. And that is the Lord Jesus Christ. But we are by nature unrighteous. But God wants us to be righteous. God wants us to be holy. God wants that sin removed and that sinful nature controlled and eventually destroyed by death. For we are to be holy as he is holy. And so justification by faith is that God, by our faith in his son Jesus, would be justified. So for with the heart man believeth unto righteousness. So the link between faith and righteousness is here made very clear. It shows that righteousness comes to us when we embrace God's goodness offered to us in the gospel. The holiness of Jesus is, is as it were, put into our name, his righteousness, I should say. And we're made righteous for that reason. Because we believe that God is favorable to us in Christ. And that's what it is. God gives Christ. We believe on Christ. And then we have a restored relationship with God. But note with me that the seat of this faith, the very the dwelling place, as it were, of faith is not in the head, but it is in the heart. And not in the sense of the heart as the seat of the emotions, but in the very heart of man, the very core of who you are, your very soul. He doesn't use the word soul, but he could do. It's in your very soul, in the very core of who you are. And as that word of faith, as it is preached and as it enters in, what happens? Well, that word is a seed and it's planted into the heart. And the fruit of Obtaining that faith is the righteousness of Christ. And what does that righteousness of Christ mean? 
It means everything that Christ has for our salvation is given to us. It's given to us at that moment. Forgiveness, absolute forgiveness, eternal forgiveness for all our sins. And then God declares us to be righteous. We who are by nature so unrighteous. And so therefore we are saved because we believe And that belief is in Jesus Christ, the righteous. Therefore, do not believe in anyone else. Do not believe in yourself. Do not believe in any of these false prophets, these Muhammads, these Buddhas. Uh, Do not believe in them. They were not righteous. They were also not the only begotten Son of God. They did not die for your sins. They died in their sins. Now, you must believe on Jesus Christ, the righteous So we've seen the faith that he mentions there in verse 10. For with the heart man believeth unto righteousness. But now we move to the mouth or confession as he says. With the mouth confession is made unto salvation. Now it may appear a little bit strange here that Paul does not speak of our salvation as being connected with faith. He he talks about faith and now he moves on to the mouth and the confession that's made, and, and he links that with salvation. I mean, surely Paul, in many places, in, in Romans, in chapter 3 of Romans especially, talks about that salvation is by faith alone, is not by works, lest any man boast. So how is it making confession with the mouth in some way saves you? Well, he's not saying that. Not at all. What he's saying And the intention is this, is to show the fruit of the work of God. When God implants saving faith in our hearts, it will show itself by confession. True faith, bringing forth a true confession, without which there is no salvation. So it indicates that we are saved. It's made unto salvation. It does not cause salvation. It does not pay for salvation. It cannot. Only the blood of Jesus pays for salvation. But a true confession indicates a true work of salvation. The word preached, the word confessed, the word believed, and finally the word promised. The word promised, bringing us to the last few verses. Romans 11 says, For the scripture saith, Whosoever believeth on him shall not be ashamed. So the first of, of, of three subpoints then, in considering the word promised, firstly that there's no shame, no shame in believing the gospel promises. There's no shame. Uh, the scripture that the apostle refers to is actually, he's quoting Isaiah, and he says, In verse 11, taking from Isaiah 28 and verse 16, he says, Therefore thus saith the Lord God, Behold, I lay in Zion for a foundation a stone, a tried stone, a precious cornerstone, a sure foundation. He that believeth shall not make haste. And as Paul writes, it shall not be ashamed. He mentions that also in chapter 9 and verse 33 of the same translation or application of that 
quote, This is an old gospel promise for the Old Testament people of God. That they could look to this promise, that they could have an encouragement to do what? To believe. To be encouraged to believe. For the Old Testament saint must believe as much as the New Testament saint. They had less knowledge and less light, yes. But they had enough gospel promises to lead them to believe the word of God. And so they needed encouragement to believe as you need encouragement to believe. And as we considered this morning, to be encouraged to, to seek and have that growth and increase of depth of faith in having assurance of faith. But now the New Testament church receives the same gospel promise. So we're reading it here in Romans chapter 10. A gospel promise and gospel encouragement. For the scripture saith, Isaiah saith, Whosoever believeth on him shall not be ashamed. And listen to that encouragement. If you are to believe on this gospel promise, if you you would realize, and this is what's being taught here, it is not a vain thing, it is not an empty promise. It is not some precarious thing to put your hopes of salvation upon the Lord Jesus Christ. It is not a waste of time. It's not a waste of time to hear these promises, and it's not a waste of time to believe those promises, to put your hope in those promises. I believe the promises of God because God who cannot lie has spoken these promises to me. You might say to yourself, well, how do I know these promises are for me? God, by his providence, has brought you here this evening to hear the gospel. And he uses words such as whosoever, if any, if thou. And see then the clear and bold statement that's made to the most fearful and weakest of sinners who are desperate for the forgiveness of their sins, of having peace with God. Paul writes here and says, Whosoever believeth on him shall not be ashamed. You will not come to Christ and leave empty-handed. If he has promised salvation, then he will give you salvation. And therefore, let us understand this, that Christ is not reluctant to give salvation to any that will believe on him. He will not leave you stranded. He will not leave you in your sin. When you come to him, you will not be ashamed. You will not be all red-faced. You will not go away and say, I genuinely came to the Lord. I heard the gospel call and command and I obeyed it and I came to Christ and he rejected me. No, that cannot be. God will not promise and fail you. You will not be ashamed. So there's no shame to those that come to the Lord Jesus and believe on him. Secondly, there's no difference in verse 12. And he's now he's speaking because he has been speaking about the Jews. He's been bringing in the Gentile, these, these two different peoples, as it were, the, 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 the Old Testament people of God, the, the commonwealth of Christ in the Old, in the old Covenant, and now the, the, the addition of the Gentiles through the Great Commission in the New Testament. 
But he says there is no difference between the Jew and the Greek. And we could add words in there. I'm going to add words to Scripture. When say there is no difference. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Yes, there are promises made to the Jew. We can add all sorts of things to fill it up. But let's not. Let's read the verse in its own words. For there is no difference between the Jew and the Greek. The Old Testament people of God and those who are outside of God's people. And all are to be found by the great commission of the preaching of the gospel. For the same Lord over all is rich unto all that call upon him. He's referring back to the same theme about the Jews. But what we may understand when he's speaking of Jew and Greek is we can understand it does not matter who you are. It does not matter whether you are Jew or Greek. It doesn't matter uh, whether you're first nation, second nation or 44th nation. It does not matter what your background is, what your status in life is, how moral or immoral you have been, whether you are a Christian or a pagan, for the same Lord over all is rich unto all that call upon him. Here is God who has set a people apart for himself and says, I am rich, rich in what? Rich in mercy and grace unto all that call upon me, he says. And he brings in all the filthy pagans with all their wickedness and all their immorality and all their lies and he gathers them in as well the same Lord over all is rich unto all that call upon him and he, what is he saying? he's saying he will not reject he will not despise but his mercy and his grace is available in such abundance unto each and every person that calls upon his name he's rich He's rich in mercy. How often have you heard the gospel and done nothing with it? How often have you heard the command to repent and believe, but you've laid it to one side? And then you might be thinking, and maybe the devil whispers it, it's too late. You've rejected Christ so many times that portion in the scripture where it talks about trampling underfoot the blood of Christ, that, that's you and, and you're beyond help. The word of the Lord says this, that the same Lord over all is rich unto all that call upon him. While we are in a day of grace, let us call upon the name of the Lord, which brings us to our last point in the gospel and in these promises, these many promises that we have in our verses, that there is no shame, that God makes no difference, and thirdly and finally, no doubt. There is no doubt. Brings us to that famous verse, Romans 10 and verse 13. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Paul, as it were, has been building up to a, a high point here having laid the, the groundwork of all these other things and, and gone into certain detail in some of these confessions and uh, uh, confessing with the mouth and believing with the heart. And, and he's taught us a number of things already, uh, but now he comes to something that is the simplest 
especially of these three promises that we have seen here in verses 11, 12, and 13. It's the simplest of all. And what does it say? It says, whosoever. We could translate whosoever as anyone. Anyone. It's very open. But the promise goes out and says, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Anyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. So whosoever means anyone, call. What is call? Well, a call is you personally answering the gospel command to repent and believe. And you do that by talking to God. How do you talk to God? In prayer. You call upon God with your words. There's no formula. Remember, there's no, there's no magic to get you in heaven. The grace of God, the blood of Jesus, and the gospel, and all that that encompasses will bring you to heaven. So whosoever call, to call in prayer to the Lord, what would you call for? What do you want, sinner? You want your sins forgiven. You want Jesus to be your saviour. You want a home in heaven. You want all guilt and conscience and, and wrath to be removed. Then you call upon the name of the Lord. What does it mean here by name of the Lord? Well, it's praying to God for Christ's sake. For the sake of Christ. For the work that Christ did. For the promises, uh, yea and amen, in Christ. That he is the person of the gospel. So Lord, forgive me because of what Christ did. Apply his blood to my soul. Forgive me. Because there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. And so having worked through uh, this 13th verse, we finish with the seal of God upon this promise. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. God has declared it. God has declared it very clearly. He's had it written down in black and white. And there are millions and millions of witnesses throughout the centuries to confirm the truth that God keeps his word. They have called upon the name of the Lord. They have been saved. Their consciences have been soothed and cleansed. And they have peace with God. And, a, and, a, and a, a number that no man can count is now in heaven. And God willing, you will join them. So in closing then, let me speak to you that is outside of Christ. You that is unsure of being inside Christ. When it comes to salvation, let us be sure. And why are we to be sure? Well, we are to cease calling God a liar. That's essentially what's happening is when you hear the command and the call and the promises of the gospel, you say, no, it's not for me. I'd like it, but 
God doesn't mean it. God doesn't mean it. He does mean it. God only speaks the truth. And his word that has been preached to you this evening is the truth. So you're to cease calling God a liar. You're to cease questioning the truth and the authenticity of his promises. And put all of the weight of your sin upon Christ. It's like a bridge. It's like a wooden bridge. You come to a wooden bridge and you're not too sure. You're not too sure whether you can put your weight on it, whether it's safe to step onto that bridge and walk across. So you, you, you as it were, you try it. And some might turn away and go away. So I, I, I don't trust that bridge. And yet what do we have on the side of this bridge? We have an eternal certificate given. That this bridge is sure and steadfast. This bridge was built in eternity by the Son of God. This bridge will carry the weight of the worst sinner. This bridge is open this evening. This bridge is Jesus Christ. As Paul writes, and we close with this quote from Romans 3 and verse 4. He says, God forbid, yea, let God be true. But every man a liar, as it is written, that thou mightest be justified in thy sayings, and mightest overcome when thou art judged. And therefore, let us trust him. Let us call upon the name of the Lord. Let us receive salvation. Let us receive faith. And you too will be enabled to confess Christ as your Lord. And you will have personally experienced the power of the word of faith. Amen. Let us pray. O merciful and loving God, we give thee thanks for thy great mercies, for the wonderful promises, for thy richness of grace towards thy people. We look unto thee, Lord, and we pray that thou wilt work faith, that what we've read, what we've understood, that whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And those whosoever's here this evening who have not called upon thy name and therefore have, do not have their sins forgiven and are therefore still under thy wrath, Lord, help them. Have mercy upon them. Thou art rich in mercy and goodness and truth. So even this evening, thou who hast said that faith cometh by the hearing, We pray, O Lord, that faith will come by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Will thou have mercy, O God, we pray. Bless thy word to us, to our salvation, and to the strengthening of our faith, to the glory of thy name. We pray in the name of the Savior. Amen.